Welcome to the Startup Competitors Podcast, where we talk with early stage entrepreneurs to understand what information they use to inform product roadmap, strategy, and market differentiation. Hey there, hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. Today we're talking with Michael Aft, who's the co-founder and co-CEO of the new paper. I've been reading the new paper for a few weeks now, subscribed uh, before I talked with Michael, and it's been fantastic. If you've not subscribed to that, go do that, as well as subscribe to this podcast if you're not subscribed to this. Also, you can leave us a review. You can drop me a note at mkelly at startupcompetitors.com if you'd like to send me something uh, more personal. Love any feedback that you have. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Full Stack PEO. Most founders start companies because they figured out a better way to solve a problem or serve a need, not because they love tracking payroll, filling out compliance forms, and explaining employee benefits packages. And yet, all that stuff still has to be done. That's why there's Full Stack PEO. Full Stack PEO specializes in turnkey HR for emerging companies, not just those core services, but advice and expertise that help founders maximize employee potential. Curious? Find out more at fullstackpeo.com. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we are chatting with Michael Aft, who's the co-founder and co-CEO of The New Paper. Michael, welcome. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start with a quick pitch for The New Paper? Absolutely. So, you know, at our core, the new paper is a digital media company that aims to overcome sensationalism in the media. And the best way to actually explain what that means is to tell you the story about how we how we kind of came to be. So more than anything, I'd say the new paper was founded out of frustration. You know, my co-founder and I were working at LinkedIn together so all the way back in 2015. And we saw a really troubling shift in engagement away from kind of straightforward factual content and towards sensational clickbait journalism, sensational clickbait news. And it certainly wasn't isolated to the LinkedIn platform. This was kind of across the consumer content ecosystem. And so, you know, when I left LinkedIn, I went off to B-School and my co-founder went off. He ran growth at uh, The Hustle, a major email newsletter publication uh, focused on the tech space. And then we kind of reunited back in 2018 to build a new paper. Um, and, and really, our goal is to overcome sensationalism, the me- sensationalism in the media. And the way that we do that uh, is by publishing a once daily digest that does a couple things. First thing is five to 10 most important stories of any given day for currently a US-based consumer. And then two is within each one of those stories, what are the actual facts you need to know? What is the thing that happened? Why does it matter? No opinion, no analysis, conjecture. And we found over the last year that you know, folks have generally speaking, you know, found a void in this market of straightforward factual journalism. And and that's what we hope to solve. So we've been excited with the progress. We're currently at about 100,000 users. And we're, you know, continuing to grow at a pretty healthy clip. And we're excited about what the future holds. But we think it's an important problem to solve. And, you know, especially with what you see right now in the media, and it's been only exacerbated by the recent COVID stuff. Uh, we're excited right. about what we're doing. So... I got to tell you, I sub- so when we first got introduced, was that two weeks ago, three weeks ago, just a, a handful of weeks ago, I subscribed on that day and have really come to enjoy it. I, of course, I think I subscribed to The Hustle. I subscribed to, you know, a handful of those kind of like daily tech uh, things. PitchBook has one and, and you know, like I, I get all of those and I will tell you, I open maybe across all of those, I open one of them once a week, right? Like I, I just don't have time to open those up and read them. And one of the things I've really liked about what you guys are doing is I've opened every single one of them that you've sent in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. 
I've read every single one of them, like actually read it, which is bananas to me. Like I don't even think like if you had asked me when I click subscribe, if I would actually do that, I would have straight up told you no chance. Yeah, <laughs> like, there's just, like there's just absolutely no chance. But you guys are so succinct. It very much, and I, these are my words, not yours. I don't know if you can say this or not, but it very much reminds me of like the front page of the Wall Street Journal, like that little box of what you need to know. Yeah. And only with kind of a tech slant. And it's not, and I've, I've noticed it's not even 100% tech, right? Like it's just, it is what's happening in the world, uh, which is just, re- it's been really great. So I, I would tell you as a, as a, pretty short time user, my results have been ridiculous relative to what I would have told you my results would have been uh, back when I click subscribe. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. I mean, you know, first and foremost, we always love hearing from readers. But I'd say the other thing is, it's so interesting. You know, when we were pitching investors last year, one of the big questions that comes up is like, all right, well, information is freely available on this thing called the internet. And you can get the same information <laughs> from any different news outlet. So what makes you special? Uh, and what and you know what kind of builds that moat over time? And what we found is it's essentially the experience that you just had. Like within media, the only way to build brand value is to earn trust over time. So yes, of course, you have to go through the traditional onboarding flow and you know set up a really robust growth process and referral system and all those fancy things. But you know that only takes you so far. And what you really need to do is build trust. But once you've built that trust, you have it forever. And look, it's a hard thing to do. It's a you know it's a fine walk. It's a fine line to walk. When you're saying you're going to provide unbiased, factual information, especially in this world of content, but uh, if you do it over time, people will grow to trust trust you and trust your brand, and then you have a reader for life. So that's what we think makes this valuable. It's not like a SaaS company where it's a mission critical software that my Salesforce literally cannot operate without, but it essentially accomplishes the same thing because it's you know it's really the go to source for the way that people start their day. Talk to me a little bit about traction. Paint a picture for folks listening. I think you said you started in 2018, if I'm not misremembering that. Yeah. Where are you guys at today? How many subscribers? How big is the team? Anything you can share at all around uh, kind of vanity metrics? Yeah, absolutely. So we started off in 2018. You know, the first few months really was focused on identifying product market fit. Everything from delivery mechanism to formatting content, things of that nature. Uh, and so entering 2019 last year, we started off the year with about 4,000 newsletter subscribers, hadn't generated any revenue, weren't really a, a real business yet. Uh, and we've been really excited about the growth. So we're currently over 100,000 readers you know, across both of our products. So email as well as SMS. We're super excited. The SMS product is a relatively recent one, but we really are the only company that's delivering the news via text. And we've you know, been absolutely floored by the response there. Um, and then the team's interesting. So we, you know, we've got myself, my co-founder full time. We've got a small army of interns. But what makes this model so attractive is you don't really need that big of a team because it's such a high margin business and it scales so rapidly. So in many ways, you know, the economics in the team, you know, kind of looks like a software company because we don't have to hire a massive staff of journalists because we do keep our content so succinct and because we do focus on that once daily digest. So it's been a great year of growth. I think those are kind of the Many metrics I could give you. You know, we've been super pleased with things like open rates, hearing a lot from readers like yourself. Uh, you know, super pleased with things like click through rates and all those kind of vanity metrics. You know, they're all in the two to three times industry average range. But really, we've just been pleased with the high quality audience we've built and the kind of clip of growth that we hope to continue extending throughout the rest of this year. That's awesome. And it, th- so there's a couple of things resonating with what you're telling me right now. And I know before we turn on the mics, you'd, you'd mentioned you'd listen to a couple of the episodes. And I, I feel like I feel compelled to ask, is there any chance you listen to the one that dropped this morning with John Ramey from The Prepared? I did not have a chance to know what I plan to later today. Well, it, it's totally fine. You, like First, you definitely need to listen to that one because... So John, 
is weirdly the fact that we're recording this the same time that that one dropped. He he's also in a very similar in a media company. He he spends a lot of time in that episode talking about in your kind of opening pitch for the new paper what what you'd mentioned around like you know there's not a lot of trust in the media today. There's you know it's a lot of it's very ad driven, influencer driven, which you know further erodes trust. And you know what he's trying to do is is find a way to to build a company very similar to to what you've said. Like how do how do you build a scalable business without doing that? And so I guess first and foremost, with, with kind of that in mind, maybe that's the first line of questioning. Why is that so important? And and I apologize, I, I forgot your your co-founder's name. Who's your co-founder? Yeah, his name's John Nessif. He's a, a former coworker and good friend from my LinkedIn days. Awesome. So for you and John, why is that such an important aspect? And just to clarify, when you say that, are you referring to the scalability of the business model or just the focus on straightforward factual news? Straightforward factual news. Yeah, I mean, look, you're going to get me on my soapbox here, but I think a common set of facts is fundamental to our democracy and the way that our country operates. And I do not like that's not hyperbole for me. I couldn't believe that more down to my core. Right now, if you were to go to, I won't name news outlets because we don't want to, you know, get into the business of bashing on the news outlets. But if you went to a left leaning outlet, a right leaning outlet, or you just looked at two different people's Facebook feeds, which is unfortunately where a lot of people get news, which uh, is almost the same thing. (laughs) Exactly right. It would be fundamentally different information. And that's not what journalism was meant to be. Journalism was meant to be a common set of facts that informs a proper public discourse. And it's totally okay that people have widely polarized views and believe completely different things on issues, but it's not okay that they're getting fed different information and a lot of times inaccurate information, information that is opinions and conjecture masquerading as factual content. And that is a scary, scary thing. And I genuinely believe that if we don't fix the problem, and I think that I think that we and potentially some others can fix that problem. Uh, in fact, I know that we can, but if we don't, I think it, I think it's only going to exacerbate the problems that we see right now. And you can see it across not only the U.S. but kind of broadly within the you know kind of global ecosystem, right? You've got populism rising in you know pretty much every major economy. You've got this polarization of people within the United States, within the U.K. You saw it with Brexit, and I genuinely do believe that th- those problems stem from a lack of consistent factual information. If we could all just start our day with a common set of facts, I think that we would be significantly more cohesive. And I think we'd be more productive as a society, as a government, as a country, and as a world. And I, you know, I know that that's kind of grandiose. And I know that that might sound lofty, but I, I really do believe it. A common set of information is so, so critically important. And there's been tons of research. I'll, you know, I'll get off my soapbox here in a second. But it's so interesting. Like Pew Research came out with a, with a study around mis- misinformation in the media. And it was like some crazy, you know, I'm sure that this was clickbait in of itself, but there's some stats that essentially said that more Americans are concerned that misinformation in the media is a threat to our country than, you know, than terrorism and climate change and things like that. And so generally speaking, what we found is that this is not only a problem that's important to solve at the macro level, but it's also a problem that's important to solve when you just ask people what they want. You know, people are fed up with the media and they're fed up with not being able to trust it. And we just couldn't think that it's more important for every single person to start their day with a common set of facts. And that's our ambition, right? There's, what, 200 million people who read the news online in the US. And we want to reach every single one of them with one of our products. So let me play the skeptic then for a second, because I, I agree with you. I don't know that if I went to CNN or Fox News, I would believe a single headline that I read at face value. So how do you get to that common set of facts? Like, what is your team doing to get to the, you know, the the actual fact of what occurred without the spin? 
Yeah, it's such a great question, right? We get this, we get asked this one all the time. Investors, you know, award folks, like every person asks us this question. We thought a lot about it. So a couple different answers. One is kind of at the macro level. You know, we believe that any business will essentially operate in a way that it is economically incentivized to do so. So by making our stated mission factual unbiased news, we essentially commit to doing it and we have to do it or else we'll see huge churn. Uh, we'll see kind of a revolt among our readers and we see it now. Like if we, you know, if we cover something and even if it's a nuanced way it comes through as bias, we hear about it from dozens of readers. Um, so the first thing that we do and you know, first way that we do that is essentially by saying that we're going to and making that our stated purpose and having that be what drives people to sign up because we, you know, we're accountable to that. The second piece is process. And we've been super intentional. In, <laughs> intentional. I can't speak today. We've been super, <laughs> it's all good. super intentional about uh, keeping the process human-focused, but also process-oriented uh, to remove as much bias as possible. So what that actually means is we go through a really rigorous rubric every day. Like I, you know, co-founder and I wake up at 5 a.m. every day and ask, our, ask ourselves first and foremost, what are the 5 to 10 most important, most impactful stories of the day? That part's you know, a little bit easier from a bias perspective. But then it's reading everything. I mean, we read everything on the on the left, on the right, on the middle. We read primary source material. We're going through financials and 10Ks to, to distill the actual set of facts and understand you know, what is the actual thing that happened and why does it matter? We never provide opinion. We never provide analysis or estimation or any of that stuff. We just try to do those simple things. One of the, what are the five to 10 most important stories you need to know today? What are the things that happened and why do they actually matter? And what we found is that there's a lot of news sources that are trying to become Algorithmic, algorithmically curated. And that inherently leads to bias. And look, it might be more efficient to have a computer or an algorithm serve content to people that it thinks that they will click on. But that's part of the issue with media right now. And we think the process actually has to be human focused and it has to be process focused. So that's the way we do it. It's our stated goal. We're economically incentivized to do it. We're morally incentivized to do it. We've also set up a really robust process that essentially would allow us to drop in any writer, you know, left, right, center, you know, whatever it is. Uh, to come into that process and really execute on that stated goal. And how do you monetize the business today? Yeah, so two sources of revenue. The first is traditional ad revenue, and the second one is consumer subscriptions. And you know, we'd anticipate continuing to grow both of those business lines going forward. You know, I think that uh, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this. I think you can read a lot of literature about how COVID has impacted the ad business. So we're really pleased to have this diversified business model and be able to generate subscription revenue. But I think going forward, especially coming out of COVID, you know, we hope to see return in ad revenue and we'd anticipate, you know, kind of a dual track line of business going forward as well. Got it. When you think of future growth for the new paper, what do you think that looks like? Paint a picture for me of the new paper three to five years from now. Yeah. I mean, like this is going to sound ambitious and crazy, but we want to be a hundred million dollar revenue company. We want to reach over a hundred million readers. Like we think this, this is such an important problem to solve. And it's only solved when every single person who reads the news actually starts their day with a common set of facts. So if we had any ambition that was not every person who reads the news online reads a new paper product, I don't think we'd have the right goal. So next three to five years, look, we're growing incredibly quickly. It's super hard for me to nail down, hey, end of this year, end of next year, we're going to be at X number of subscribers, X number of revenues. It feels like every time we set one of those targets, we end up breaking through it. Oftentimes ahead of schedule, uh, but really that's the ambition for us. And I'd say the other piece of it is you can't really grow unless you're serving everybody's needs, right? So currently we launch through or we we distribute content through SMS and email, but that that's certainly not where we're stopping, right? So we have ambition to build kind of a, a suite of consumer-oriented products. So anywhere that you want to consume the news online, you can consume a new paper product. And we think that's equally important 
to kind of reaching that skill. So, you know, 100 million, 200 million readers. There's a lot of media companies who have achieved, you know, perhaps not 100 million readers, but really, really significant scale in this space. And one of the reasons that we're so excited about it is my co-founder has got a really deep background in consumer product growth. This is what he did at The Hustle. And, you know, he continues to execute on that roadmap for us. So when you say 100 million readers, 200 million readers, and that's the way people are starting their day. That's the jumping off point that it evokes for me, like, you know, the Reddit slogan of the front page of the internet, right? So are you the front page of the news then? Like I decide if I'm going to spend 15 minutes reading the news, I'm going to start with the new paper. And then I use that as my jumping off point to then go down the rabbit hole of all these other news websites and brands, or, or am I staying at that point? Am I staying with the new paper and going deep with you? No, it's such a funny way to describe it. Like, I mean, first and foremost, we're absolutely massive fans of Reddit and kind of treat it the same way. But no, like, I think the way you just described it is, is uh, the former, at least, is a, a really strong way to put it. And the way we think of ourselves is just the first touch of daily news. Like, the new paper will never replace the high quality journalism that is out there. And there's tons of great publications, right? The journal you mentioned, you know, the New York Times, you know, BBC, NPR, AP News. Like, there's just, there's lots and lots of really good journalism. And the new paper is never going to be the company that's hiring 200, 1,000 journalists to go be on the front lines reporting and covering and breaking news. All we hope to do is be the first touch of daily news because every one of our products leads to an outlet that we trust. What we're essentially able to do is kind of sit above that level. We're not really beholden to any one ecosystem of news product. And we can select what we view as the absolute best piece of journalism on a given story. So the absolute goal for us is to be a partner for those major news media publications. And all we do is kind of sift through and distill what we view as the best possible source on something and own the first touch. So you might spend an hour with the daily news, but the first five to 10 minutes are going to be with the new paper. And we are going to help guide you and direct you to what we believe is the best possible news experience. And that is a process right now that if you wanted to do yourself would probably take you three or four hours. And we hope to do that for you in five to 10 minutes. And then when you think about the, I don't, uh, there's probably a word for this in the news that in, in journalism that I'm not aware of. But like when I think about like the segmentation of news, right? So you've got you domestic, world, finance, tech, what sports, whatever, right? Like w- whatever those areas of interest are. That so that's not something you guys do today, right? Is that something that you envision in the future you would do? Where if I it's a Saturday and I just want to get my sports fix, I can go find what are the top five stories in sports, or would it would you always remain this kind of high level top worldview? Like this is what matters right now. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't, I don't want to use a word like always because you never know what the future is going to hold. Right. Generally speaking, now what we found is that there's so much content out there. What people really do want is that. What are the most important stories to know right now? And if there's a sports story or a culture story or an economy story or world news or politics or whatever it is, we want our readers to know that they can trust that the new paper is going to handle it. So if LSU wins the national championship in football, definitely going to cover it, right? If uh, the Fed lowers interest rates to a target rate of 0%, they're going to read about it. And there are other types of products that we're developing that are kind of an extension of what we do now, which help provide a little bit more data rather than content. But at the, end, at the end of the day, our focus really is that core problem of if I want to understand what are the most important things to know today, and I just want to feel informed as a consumer, I can't really do that right now. There's so many specialized news sources. There's so many, quote unquote, broad, unbiased news sources, but none of them are really doing that in a way that's digestible for a consumer. And the, the experience right now is frustrating. So we're, we expect, I can't, I can't promise you always, 
But at least in the next couple of years, we expect to continue along the path of five to 10 most important stories to know today. And we will tell you if something in sports happened that you, you need to know. So part of what prompted that question is I've, I've sometimes, so I have a on again, off again relationship with the news. So I will sometimes, <laughs> which I'm, I'm, I'm guessing is not unique. No. There must be plenty, plenty of people who do that. But like, so there'll be times where I'm like, oh man, I like, I need to, I, I need to be more informed. I need to spend more time reading the news. I need to be, spend more time listening, you know, listening on my drive in, whatever, like whatever that is, wherever you decide to get your news. But then there are other times where I'm like, it, like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> None of this matters. I can't influence any of it. I can't change any of it. Me even knowing about it in a lot of cases doesn't influence anything. So I'm just going to check out and listen to an audiobook for the next three weeks. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about either personally or philosophically, what what's your view on that? And then how does... One of the things that I found refreshing about being a subscriber over the last couple of weeks is that while I am in a cycle right now where I'm largely checked out, which sounds weird with COVID, but you know, I'm it's also a lot of the same thing again and again and again right now. So I, you know, I I also don't feel like I'm missing out on anything. One of the things that's been nice about getting the new paper is that like I I am kind of seeing at least somebody's curated view of what I should be paying attention to or what should be on my radar, even while I'm in this cycle of like I'm I'm not gonna invest real time in trying to stay up to speed on anything. So I guess maybe start personally, you know, do, do you struggle with that sometimes? And then what's your vision for how to handle that if, if that's a real issue? I mean, Mike, how sad is it that you are a highly successful professional who has access to lots of news, but are so frustrated by the experience that you literally have to unplug from the media for multiple weeks at a time. And when I say that the new paper was found out of frustration, it's exactly what you just described. I went through that. I've gone through that multiple times in the past. And I'd say that's the fault of where the journalism industry is right now. And it's definitely not true of all news media, right? There are really fantastic publications out there. There's some absolutely fantastic journalism out there. But the way that the industry has become incentivized and the way that content is distributed has become so focused on clicks and volume that it's become this mess of an experience. And even somebody like you, who absolutely should be able to feel informed without having a bunch of clickbait thrown in their face, is so frustrated that they have to unplug. So first and foremost, I feel your pain. Secondly, that is literally why we have to exist. And I think that it, at one point in time, journalism was that, right? Journalism was a common set of facts that helps you feel informed, helps you feel informed for your day, helps you understand what's going on in the world, but it wasn't throwing all this noise at you and it wasn't so frustrating and exhausting to read. And I don't know when exactly that changed. I couldn't pinpoint an exact time, but it did. And now it's become frustrating. So, you know, I'd say more than anything, Stories like that are things that I've experienced as well, right? Things that my co-founders experience as well, things that we hear all the time. And you're not the first reader who's told us, you know, before you, I couldn't read the news. I couldn't watch the news, but you've given me an outlet into that. You've given me a way to stay informed without all the noise. So, you know, the best thing I can tell you is we built this product for exactly the reason that you just articulated, because you're not the only person who feels that way. We feel that way. That's why we started this product, and that's what we hope to solve. It, it is, again, it's, it, it floors me to know how many people in this country, how many people around the world actually have to unplug from the news. Think about that. To just feel informed and understand what's going on in the world, the news media system is so broken that you can't just feel informed. And you have to feel this frustration, like, I can't do anything about this. There's so many problems in the world. 
there's so much that I could be doing or that I can't be doing. Like that is a frustration that you should not have to feel just to do the simple thing of feeling informed in your morning. And that's why we do what we do. We do what we do to solve exactly the frustration that you just highlighted. So, Michael, what do you guys do for swag at the new paper? Yeah, um, we have some fresh off the press uh, q that we absolutely love. We've got some shirts as well, and we are continuing to expand rapidly because I feel that no startup is legit unless you have as much swag as possible. So, Is that swag for, for you, John, and the interns, or do you sell that to guys like me who are uh, thrilled to be subscribers and supporters and, and want to buy something? Like, wh- where does that swag go? Mike, if you want a shirt, you're going to get a shirt. Let me just say that. <laughs> um, and no, we do it for team and family and you know supporters. I'd say what's actually interesting is well, as we contemplate expanding our referral program, Offering swag can be a really great way to incentivize referrals. So we're toying with the idea of that. But so far, we've been playing it pretty close to the best. Oh, legit. I like that. That's a great idea. Yep. All right. Well, for those who need to get their startup swag, you can go to fuelmerchandise.com. Mention startup competitors. Get 10% off your first order. All of the classic startup swag you might need. I'm going to switch gears here a little bit. Talk to me about being a co-CEO. What uh, what drove you guys to to make that decision, and uh, how does that work? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So we've been super intentional about it. And I know it's not the norm for tech companies, um, certainly at our stage. But what we found is that I, I don't think it's the norm for any company. Yeah, <laughs> Just fair, to be fair. clear. <laughs> so look, what we found is that if we actually want to, you know, kind of walk the walk after talking the talk of being completely unbiased, then we needed to keep editorial and business separate. So as soon as we started selling ads, we needed to completely keep content production, which my co-founder owned, and ad, you know, kind of ad revenue and sales, which I owned, uh, as separate parts of the business. And we didn't ever want a place where the journalism team or the editorial team reported up to a business incentivized person because we think that that in many ways is what gets a lot of companies into trouble. Right? As soon as soon as you have one person who's incentivized to drive as much revenue as possible, you're going to start making decisions that aren't necessarily the best from a content first perspective and from a user pers- first perspective. And that's the exact opposite of what we wanted to do. So what we found is that for a company like us, we kind of have to be co-CEOs and we kind of have to keep those as separate pillars. And even you know, even though we're co-founders, and we very much operate as partners, we didn't want one CEO where you know business reports up to editorial or editorial reports up to business because we think it's so important in terms of remaining unbiased, remaining part- impartial, and delivering on the on the content and value proposition that we that we promised to our readers in terms of what did that actually looks like day to day. So you know we're look we're two a two person team right now. We're both doing a lot of stuff. So I do everything from biz dev and sales and HR and hiring and finance and all that fun stuff. And my co founder, you know, like I said, he ran growth the hustle. So he runs growth and editorial and product development. We kind of found that you know focusing on the things that we're both the best at individually is the best way to leverage both of our sales skill sets in a you know kind of efficient way that that drives more value as a as a combined team. But the high level is that even independent of that, we feel it's important to have co-CEOs of a business like this to make it abundantly clear internally, externally that we do treat editorial as independent and we always will. So you know you can certainly imagine when it when it's the two of you in startup mode and both of you, you know, I'm sure while you're each focused on your superpower and, and trying to deliver the thing that you're best suited for, you're also, I'm sure, supporting the other and and trying to help make them successful. So that I, I totally get that. How long do you think this survives? If you if you've got 200 million subscribers, 
and you've got other products in the market and now you've got employees and you know you're generating real like serious ad revenue which you know comes with its own complications and and you know you'll have a team there as well how how long do you think this survives and and when you guys do really start to drift apart because you've got different teams that you're managing and stuff like that it, it's less about the two of you in the daily grind and and more about the two of you now managing you know just different operations within the business how do you guys think about or talk about how that plays out in the future and and how you'll deal with disagreements yeah, it's so interesting. So I'd say this business does survive because of that structure, um, not necessarily in spite of it. I think you know where we would get into trouble is if we reach 200 million readers, we have one person who's managing both sides of the business. I think that's where you start to you know allow the wrong decision to be made or allow bias to slip into some of the decisions you make just purely based on the business business model that you're running and kind of where your priorities are. So I'd say first and foremost, you know we've set ourselves up in this way because we believe that this is scalable and constantly having editorial under its own pillar, uh, we think is critically important. It's the only real way to scale this business for us. So that's the first thing. I'd say the second thing is when it comes to decision-making, uh, you know, we're really fortunate that, you know, look, John and I disagree all the time. And I think iron sharpens iron. And, you know, part of the reason that I love working with John is, you know, he is, you know, kind of has this uncanny ability to remain extremely objective, extremely logical, and express himself in a way that you know always put the business first. And I, I aim to do the same thing, though I'm certainly not as as good as John at it. But when we disagree, you know, the underlying principle is you know, what is best for the new paper. And at our core, you know, putting revenue aside for a second, the new paper needs to deliver straightforward, factual, and unbiased news to as many people as possible. We want every single person who reads the news to start their day with a new paper product. We want to be the first touch of daily news. And we really need to execute on that. So the question that we would ask ourselves if we ever disagreed was, what is the absolute best decision for that core user experience? Because if you don't maintain that core user experience, you don't have a business, you can't generate ad revenue, you can't generate subscription revenue in the first place. So generally speaking, that's the way we've approached it. And I'd say the other piece is, given the fact that we do own independent parts of the business, we each have total, you know, kind of total decision-making power within those parts of the business. So if I want to sell an ad contract at a discounted rate or a premium rate or longer term or shorter term, whatever it is, you know, certainly I'll have that conversation with John. But I completely own that decision in the same way that John does with growth, with editorial, with product. Uh, we've ensured that, you know, whether we're 100,000 readers or 100 million readers, each of us or those independent teams will always have 100% kind of authority over those areas, but there's never any conflict in between them. So when it comes to making individual decisions, we're still able to operate as the CEO of our business functions, which is super, super important. We think that making decision by committee is often a, often a really challenging thing to do, especially at scale. And that's certainly something that we're trying to avoid. So you know, we will continue to be co-CEOs. We'll continue to manage each side of the business independently. Uh, of course, lean on each other for advice and thoughts. And you know, we're a small team. I'm sure you've seen that before with your co-founder. But at the end of the day, we both have the autonomy and the authority to make decisions within our business units. And we're 100% aligned that every decision we make needs to have the best, you know, kind of best intent for our users and the user experience going forward. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. When you think about customer acquisition, how do you, how, well, let, I won't lead you with the question. How do you think about customer acquisition? <laughs> what, what's the strategy to go get customers? And then maybe I'll ask you some, I'll ask some clarifying questions after that. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Uh, yeah, so what we do is you know very we follow a very similar playbook to many others in the space. So it's really a combination of two things. One is organic referrals. You know we've been really pleased with the without diving too deep in the specifics, we've been really pleased with 
referral rates, you know, folks like yourself read the product for a couple of weeks, just absolutely love it and they want to share it. Um, and we do very little to incentivize that. We know that there's a lot of low hanging fruit when it comes to kind of more robust referral programs, but we've been extremely pleased with word of mouth growth. And the other piece is paid acquisition, right? You know, this is a high margin business model. Uh, this is a business model that you can monetize extremely efficiently. And as a result, you know, acquiring subscribers, uh, you know, and, and the subsequent revenue model and retention dynamics and referral dynamics that we have end up leaving us looking a lot more like a high growth subscription and kind of SaaS business than a traditional ad-driven journalism outlet. Um, so that's why we're able to do paid acquisition. And, you know, referrals and organic growth is absolutely a part of that. And paid acquisition kind of pours gas on the fire. But none of that can happen if you don't have a core product that people love and a core product that people already share. And what what does paid acquisition look like for you? Like, where are you finding... Is, is that... Because I guess what I'm struggling with is if I'm thinking of like, if I'm out Googling for the news, yeah. which is awkward, which is awkward just in and of itself. Like, are you just, are you just picking, you know, topics and then dropping in as a, as an AdWord tied to a topic? So you're constantly refreshing, you know, your, your AdWords based on what's trending right now in the news or is it? Is it different? Like I, that's the part that I, I think is hanging me up there when I think of paid acquisition. Like, what are you actually buying that's going to convert me as a as a customer? Yeah. So you know, my co founder is going to absolutely kill me if I get too deep into our growth funnel. But oh yeah, sorry. And uh, the, yeah, usual disclaimer here: you don't have to disclose anything that's going to get yeah. you sideways. No, but at a high level, look, we try to acquire subscribers via paid acquisition through anywhere that people are consuming content. So absolutely, that could mean search, that could mean social channels, um, that could mean other content channels and affiliates. Like there's there's a lot of different opportunities, but at our core, we're, we hope to be where people are consuming information. So what you just described is not outside of the realm of possibilities of what the new paper could do. But I'd say generally speaking, if you're consuming content somewhere uh, and ads are served on that platform, it is likely that either now or at some point in the future, you will see an ad for the new paper. Got it. All right. Very good. I, I realize that. Super softball answer. I wish we could go. No, no, no. Because we're doing this. Very diplomatic. I love it. Yeah. So if I looked on your coffee table right now to see what you were reading, what books and or magazines would I see there? Oh, man. Such an interesting question. All right. So first thing you would see is Chrissy Teigen's cookbook. This was not meant to be a public disclosure for that, but my wife absolutely Ah. loves cooking. (laughs) I was from 30 the other day. And she made a couple of recipes in there that I've just been absolutely craving. It was delicious. Huge fan. Um, okay. The, the second one you're going to see, these, these are actually not business related at all. So I, I'll give you my nightstand business book as well. But no, they don't. I don't. I don't. They don't have to be business related. Awesome. So the second one is just a straight up trash fiction novel. Like I've always found, I don't know, it's so interesting. So my dad's actually a rabbi and he's always loved like movies and books that are deeply meaningful because it gives them sermon material. And I, growing up, watched so many of those that now I've kind of revolted against that. And whenever I like consume books or movies or whatever, I just want the absolute like most mind numbing entertainment that I can get. So I've got like just a really poorly written fiction, fiction book that is just so entertaining. Um, and then the last piece is my, my wife and I expect to start trying to start a family here soon. And my, a guy uh, that I'm pretty good buddies with from back in my IU days um, recommended a book written by this university of Chicago economist that apparently takes all the literature and the study of pregnancy around, you know, conception, around uh, family planning, kind of first 90, 180 days, 
and really breaks it down in a scientific way. And it, you know, essentially tries to take in many ways, like what the new paper does, tries to take the noise out. So if I just like, if I, as a prospective dad, Google, like, you know, best things to do in the first 90 days of child, like of, of, you know, raising a kid, it's going to be the most overwhelming, confusing and scary experience possible. So she tries to take a really data driven approach. And that's the other one I've been reading. And then I'll give you a boring business. Wait, 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 no, no, stop. What's the name of that book? Expecting Better by Emily Oster. That is the name of the book. Uh, and I'm very excited. Okay. As soon as I'm through it, I'll let you know. All right. And now boring business book. Oh, Four books. I go through so many of those. Like I, what I try to do is alternate between trash fiction and, and like good, valuable, boring business books. So I've always found a really good one. It, there's, a, there's a couple. One is um, Never Split the Difference. Uh, I think the author's name is Chris Voss. Essentially a former FBI negotiator. Uh, who talks about excellent book. Yeah. Really, really strong one. I think more than anything, just like a, a good way to have conversations and some tips and tricks to ground yourself. And I was, you know, when I was at uh, a study in HBS for the last couple of years, one of my professors, this guy, uh, Kevin Mohan, just absolute stud negotiator. He'd always give us these little tips and tricks of like kind of psychological cues that you can do during a negotiation just to, you know, again, with the goal of not being manipulative, but more than anything, just like, conveying your point in a more effective way that kind of grounds things in a way that will drive, you know, a less averse reaction, even if you're asking for something the other person doesn't want. So huge fan of that one. Um, another really good one is who it's a hiring book. So we've, you know, I think hiring is really challenging in any environment. You know, it's certainly been a challenge when I was hiring it LinkedIn and, you know, certainly has been when we're hiring the new paper, just find the right people. And so just trying to get smart around, decision criteria and taking as much of the subjectivity out of hiring as possible. And then the last piece is how when friends and influence people. And I absolutely hate the name of that book because it sounds so manipulative, but it's so good. It's just like, how do you get out of your own head and realize that Oh, it's totally good. People just yeah. like talking about themselves, right? Just be interested in what other people are talking about. Be actually genuinely listening when somebody else is talking and you're gonna get, you know, get a lot further in the world. So those are the those are the what I would say boring business books that I read, but uh, the, the trash fiction, the Chrissy Teigen and the pregnancy book are top of mind right now. <laughs> in that order. Yeah, uh, in that order. So uh, a couple of things that occurred to me while you were rattling down that list and, and why, by the way, it was, was great. I love that you're putting in the why, like that your, your father's a rabbi and you just need to veg out sometimes. I, I wonder if I'm doing some of that same head trash with my nine-year-old right now <laughs> in, in terms of the constant diet of content that I feed him. I wonder if he's just going to, you know, later in life be rebelling against that. So now, now I'm thinking through that uh, <laughs> after, after you say that, how am I, because we're all ruining our kids in some special way. So uh, I'm trying to figure out how I'm doing that with mine. So. That's essentially what this, this uh, pregnancy book told me. You're going to mess up in every yeah. way possible. So here's some statistics to tell you how. Yeah, exactly. Yep. <laughs> Uh, Michael, this has been awesome, man. I appreciate you giving me so much time. If folks would like to get in touch with you or they want to learn more about The New Paper, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, absolutely. Just go to our website. It's thenewpaper.co.co. And that's it. You can sign up from there. You can learn more about the product. And I'll give one more shameless plug. It's thenewpaper.co. Awesome. Michael, thank you so much. Thanks so much for the time. If you're thinking of launching a SaaS product, startup competitors can provide data on your closest competitors, survey potential users, or provide other product validation services. Learn more at startupcompetitors.com.